You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my good friend, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, who is a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. How's it going, guys? Good to see you again on this wonderful hot Thursday for Colorado and apparently cold Thursday for Stephen. Indeed Boston. it is, man. I'm jealous, hey, guys, but good it's good to see you. Yeah, we were uh, we were uh, we were talking before we were recording. I'm like, Stephen, what is that noise in the background of your, which you guys might be hearing now. I'll try to tune it out uh, uh, through the edit software we have. I go, is that the heater on? I mean, sorry, the air conditioner on? Because I'm thinking it's 88 here. And then he told me it's the heater. Yeah. So what is it? It's like you said, like 40 over there? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think we might have just crested 50 within the last minute or two. So Good. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a joke for you guys. Okay, go ahead. Before we yes. go. So I uh, yesterday, I've been... Um, working with this group of undergrads up at CU Boulder. Um, and one of the students told this in our last class, this joke, um, it's topical. So, uh, so you want to hear a joke, right? Yes. Uh, quarantine. Quarantine who? Oh, it's an inside joke. <laughs> oh, that is that's pretty good, right? So, so good. Yeah, I know, and I know. Shout terrible. Out, shout out to Sydney there. That was nice. Wait, I mean, that's totally a dad joke, though. It's it totally. was total dad joke. I know. Um, I, I gravitate that way. <laughs> totally. Well, that was worth the money, right there, right there. <laughs> well, great. On that good note. Uh, please re- leave us the favorable review in spite of that terrible joke. <laughs> no, it was really good. It was really good. Uh, we do need reviews. Yeah, our we, listeners it is, just dropped way down. Yeah, we, we're, we're, we're down. The steps. It's just, yeah, it's just, just our families. Uh, we do need reviews. If you have a few minutes, go to iTunes. Uh, give us a rating that's fair, whatever you believe it's worth. If you have a few extra minutes, please uh, leave a comment. Uh, it helps us move up in the, in the ratings and make this more accessible and noticeable to other people. Also, uh, we just love some more support to help get us the uh, equipment we need. Uh, I have a few things on loan right now on free trials, and would love to be able to get those to help us with our editing. You can do that at patreon.com. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash pandemic podcast. This will be in the show notes. As little as $5 a month can help tremendously. Uh, if that a monthly gift is just a little crazy, which I don't blame you, just a one-time gift on Venmo or PayPal, I'll put in the show notes. Um, looking for if we could have in the month, even just two, ten more dollars a month would be huge for us to help get what we need to continue to keep this going. Find that all that in the show notes. And I think that's it on the introduction. Let's get into the news. Uh, things are always happening. First, I have to. I didn't tell this to you guys. I am just so thankful for you, dudes. Because because here's the my like my whole life. I think is shifting in my mind, like how I see things, the world. I mean, this could be. I think an episode of itself, like how my mind has shifted, how I've been thinking differently, how I see the world differently, how I look at like, okay, I, I used to be a big person in decision-making still am. I think it's an important skill to learn. I don't think you, you grow up, you, you don't, you don't, uh, you're not born with good decision-making skills. You, you inherit them by either hopefully good ones from your parents and, and, or learn them through classes and those kind of things. But even before that, I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, just how to think critically, how to think is like the most indispensable thing we need to learn. And seeing all these things on Facebook and uh, just encourages me to like, look to you guys and like things are more complicated. You know, you, you, you know, when you're young, you think you got it, you think you nailed it. And then as you grow, you realize things are more complicated than you realize. And this has just blown that out of the water for me. 
to, to be with you guys and to hear the research that's going on, the, the clinical evaluations, the research, the research that Steven's doing, and then seeing the responses by popular media that like, they disconform to this, what we're saying. And just realize, man, it is hard to ride the fence, that fence post of just like, I got to, it's so, um, GK Chesterton once said, uh, if you don't know, I'm just a great, great writer, uh, that, you know, that the, the mind has to bite down on something. It just can't stay open. Right. Uh, in this idea. And so <laughs> it's so, and, and the, sometimes the path least resistance is nice just to bite down whoever is most accessible and gives meaning because we're all looking for story and, uh, to explain what's going on. And it's hard to sometimes, uh, as we mentioned on Monday, to bite down on uncertainty and actually stay <laughs> with uncertainty, not in a passive way, but engage it to realize that this is more complicated. So I just want to say, look, it's blowing it out of the water. Uh, you guys, I just want to thank you for the gift that you've been into me uh, about how to open my mind to how to think well and, and hold hard things in my mind without chomping down on something that's a lot simpler and maybe overly, overly simplistic. So cool. thank well, you. Thanks, Matt. That's, uh, that means a lot. Appreciate that. It's tough. It, it like you said, this is it's a super tough time. I think for everybody, you know, me me included for sure. Just uh, just that degree of tolerance of uncertainty um, and trying to bear with, you know, all all the ups and downs in the day to day. So, but I appreciate it. Thanks. Sure, you guys are great. So, in light of that, I have a so this is this is related, sort of totally related. That uh, this is why I think I have a man crush on this guy named Ed Young. Right? That's uh, he's from uh, from the Atlantic. So everything I read by him apparently. It just like blows my mind, and this is it. Because I think, in some sense, he knows how to like deal with uncertainty and and, and orchestrate in such a way. Like, there is very few people that I read mm-hmm. that I I feel like okay, they are a trustworthy person. There's very few. I feel like they have a slant, they have an edge, they have a they have an agenda, right? Which is that's it's it's confirmation bias. What we do. Uh, there's a couple people. Another person that I think he's a he's a conservative thinker, uh, but I and I, I look at what he, uh, Robert George. Uh, I, I see a lot of times with him. I, I trust him, uh, and so him, Ed Young, a few other people love him. You got to check it out. We're we're gonna try to see if we can get him on the episode. Steven's gonna work hard. We'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you're out there, Ed, <laughs> we uh, we want you on our show. <laughs> so because you rock. Okay. So let's get going and some more stuff that's a little more substantial and not so whimsical and heartfelt. Let's, uh, <laughs> I'll gruff up here a little bit. So uh, I'm going to throw this to you, Stephen, right now. Yep. Uh, I just read this this morning uh, in this thing called the R-rate, which I don't know if we've talked about this. If we did, I'm not listening to our own episodes, and I'm really, really sorry. But I, I don't remember listening to hearing about this, but it's in the news. What is this R-rate? What does it mean? How do you actually calculate it? And then finally, where do you think we're at on that spectrum in the U.S.? Yeah, so the R that you're referring to is what we call the basic reproduction number, which is essentially, and they think they mentioned it in this article too, it's it's the expected number of people that an infected person is going to go on to infect. And if that number is greater than one, then you have an epidemic. And if that number is less than one, the epidemic is coming under control, basically, because if, if, you, if every person causes two more infections, then it's just going to grow and grow and grow. So you're absolutely right that this reproduction number is, uh, is an absolutely fundamental quali- quantity for epidemiologists. It's, you know, it's, it's something we think about a lot, and it's sort of a way of, of characterizing the infectiousness of, of a given disease. There's, I'm, I'm going to just nerd out for just indulge me for about 20 seconds here. But my my favorite scientific article of all time is called "A Brief History of R Not and a Recipe for Its Calculation," and it marches through the history of the concept of this reproduction number, and it talks about its 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 roots in in human demography, um, basically trying to capture you know whether whether a population size is going to grow or decrease because you can you can think about an infection um, sort of the same way you think about an entire population where if you know you have a person 
person who gives birth to a certain number of other people. And if you know parents give birth to, on average, two or more kids, then the population is going to grow. If they give birth to, on average, fewer than two kids, the population is going to shrink. And the same thing happens with an infectious disease. We think about infections in terms of generations, where if I'm infected and then I sneeze on you, Matt, and then you get infected, that's like a new generation of the disease, and then you pass it on to somebody else, and that's a new generation. So. It marches through all the mathematics and all the sort of intellectual history of this number, and then we basically arrived to 1990, which is when it was really first sort of characterized and set on the footing that we have as as a fundamental quantity in infectious diseases. Cool, fine. So we were talking about you're you're talking about how it's a fundamental quantity here that's really important for understanding sort of where we are in an epidemic. So. The idea is that the reproduction number is not really a static quantity. It depends on the infectiousness of the virus itself, um, but it also depends on our behavior. So, so we we have a hand in adjusting what this reproduction number is over time. So, while we're doing social distancing now, our declines. We're not interacting with as many people, so the odds that we're going to transmit to to more than one person is uh, become lower when we're staying home. And that's the whole point behind mm -hmm. social distancing and everything that we've been doing now is, is to reduce that R to something small, ideally under one. Also, as an epidemic continues, more and more people get infected and then more and more people become immune to infection. And that also reduces the R because the probability that you come into contact with somebody who can get infected becomes lower and lower until at some point that probability basically goes to zero and then the epidemic dies out. So, so that's the idea, and that's why we're interested in it. Because the higher the R is, the more the more difficult it is to control the outbreak. Um, and also, as R changes, that tells us sort of how far along we are. It allows us to answer these sort of fundamental questions of: Have we peaked? Is there going to be a resurgence in infections? A lot of these things that we're curious about sort of boil down to what's what, what's the value of this reproduction number. So that's that's why we're interested in measuring it. Uh, just uh, now, I realize that we have talked about this because I'm so used to R not. That not yep. part, and the, and then the, the Austin Pearl just talking. Somebody took the not off the R, and threw me for a loop, guys. So uh, <laughs> so like so they they did it. They did a little uh, a millennial abbreviation, you know, yeah. sort of like, totally, it's like totes. So yeah. now that's just yeah. R. So Great. okay. So continue now. So where are we at on the spectrum of of R not? Yeah. So right. So we are. Well, it's difficult to say. So one of the things you asked was like, how do we measure it? And and one yeah. way to measure it is early in an outbreak, you measure how quickly the epidemic is taking off. Um, but you can also do things like contact tracing. We can we can use genetic sequences to see who infected whom, and then fit, like retrace you know how many. Uh, and th these are genetic sequences of the virus itself, not of the people who are infected. But okay. um, but that gives you a sense of of, of essentially how, how many people each person transmitted the disease to. And and there are a couple of other ways where we can sort of infer this using mathematical models and that sort of thing. So. Best estimate right now is that across the United States, we haven't really. We've if even if you look at like Google Trends right now, to, to the extent that our current testing capacity is actually a reflection of the actual incidence of disease, and it's unclear whether it is, but let's assume that it is for the moment. We're sort of going through this phase right now where cases are roughly flat, but they've been sort of going up and down over time, and so that suggests that the reproduction number is sort of right around one, where it's not low enough to start bringing infections down, but it's also not high enough to give us this really large increase in infections. Okay. And so the, there's, the problem with that is that we don't know whether it's down because we're doing a lot of physical distancing, or if it's because there's beginning to be enough immunity in the population that the disease can't spread. And so that's the big question now is, is we, we don't know what's going to happen as we start reopening things. And so the big question is, will it rise again, which will cause a rise in infections 
or not. Okay. And that's yet to be seen. Great. So that's to be determined. And so that would help us probably understand. So with these states opening up now in the next coming days, and I heard like 30 states are probably going to be opening more in the next like three or four days. If we start seeing, you know, a spike, then the inclination is uh, it's it's not the herd immunity that's causing the issue. It's it's It was the social distancing. Exactly. That some more information. Okay. Yep. Great. Well, it's to be to be determined. Yep. Another thing in the news. This goes to, this goes into uh, to Mark. Deal with this rare illness. I just saw this morning that we're seeing. I'm not sure where exactly. I think maybe overseas somewhat that we're seeing in children from Kawasaki. I don't know anything about this. Uh, Mark said he could talk all day about it, which is that's helpful to know. So, Mark, this is in your in your wheelhouse. Can you tell us? Give us a little more information about what is this rare illness and how concerned should we be? Yeah, so I took a look at the article that that you had linked to related to that, and um, it, what it sounds like is that there is some question um, in certain communities where they're seeing some co so, so infections with COVID nineteen in children who have Kawasaki disease, and there's a question: is there potentially a link there? Is there a causative link? So Kawasaki disease um, is a very rare. So it's some, somewhere between 19 to 25 per 100,000 is the incidence in the United States every year. Okay. Um, it's a very rare disease, but it is something that we see. And so, you know, we see it clinically, I said in my pediatric training, not infrequently, you know, it's not the most common thing that you see, but you do see it sometimes. And it's essentially a process where you have inflammation of um, some of the blood vessels of the body, and there's very distinctive physical exam findings and kind of very distinctive things that happen in the body. Now, the thing about Kawasaki disease is that we don't know yet what what triggers that in certain kids. So presumably there's some, maybe some genetic predisposition, and but then it gets triggered by something. And we think, you know, maybe it's an infection. So it could be a viral infection of some sort that actually triggers this inflammation, this inflammatory cascade. And so, you know, if, if we're talking purely about plausibility, um, which you've talked about, you know, in, in other contexts, is it plausible that uh, the novel coronavirus um, could potentially start this inflammation cascade in kids and maybe have the manifestation of Kawasaki disease. I think that's possible. Could be one of the, you know, a, a viral trigger for that sort of thing. That being said, what we haven't seen, what I haven't heard, this is the first that this has hit hit my radar at all. I have not heard of, you know, huge waves of these patients coming in in areas where um, the coronavirus has been very widespread for a long period of time. So it's not something that, you know, we've we've been hearing about a lot, but it's something worth a little bit more investigation. And so, you know, I think we always have to be attentive to the fact, is this correlated at all? Is it caused or is it just simply random chance? And, you know, we, we, as in our cognitive processes as people, we always, always are looking for cause and effect. Um, always. We, we do that in relationships. We do that, you know, when you see somebody on the street and they cross the other side of the street or whatever, you know, be, they're like, it must be because, because of something I did or said, you know, but it's like, it may not have anything to do with that at all. And, but, it, but we are, you know, we're meaning making agents. That's, that's one of the things that we do. And so, so I think that, you know, we, knowing that, holding that predisposition in mind and, you know, we have this global crisis going on. Maybe we see an uptick somewhere and we start to say, is there a connection? Maybe, but that needs more study. Um, you know, that that's an area where we need to put some more focus um, and be really attentive. Um, but it sounds like everything that I've heard so far is very, very preliminary. And this seems to be related. It, it, it's, it feels like I'm, maybe I'm the only one thinking this, but that about every week there's something like this that's a, that percolates up from in the in the news that there's some maybe concern and 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 put it into its right perspective. So related to this, 
we're going to talk about this on Monday, but you said this is kind of in the same, same like a field house. And that is that, that some people are dying from strokes. Mm. That, so that was last week's news. Now, yeah. are these, are these similar? Do they have overlapping realities well, to them? I mean, the, the line, the, the line that I, I draw to this, there, there has been conversation in the, you know, in the medical community about the vascular complications of this infection. And so there's, so when we're talking about vas, you know, vascular complications, I mean, issues with blood vessels. And so what have we seen? Well, we have seen that individuals who have diabetes and hypertension, for instance, tend to have worse outcomes when they get the coronavirus. Diabetes and hypertension are two issues, uh, underlying conditions that affect the blood vessels. We know that the coronavirus uses the ACE2 receptor to gain entry into cells. And, you know, that's very, that's expressed on a lot of blood vessel cells and and we are seeing thrombotic complications you know particularly in our ICU populations but really across the board and we have uh, adopted some more aggressive measures in the hospital to keep people's blood thin um, so we're using higher doses of our typical anticoagulants in hospitalized patients who have the coronavirus and we're using some biomarkers to help us guide who gets even higher doses of that um, now all of this is based again uh, you know we we think it seems to be that the balance of evidence is like maybe maybe there are some increased vascular complications and so the fact that maybe there's a question about kawasaki disease maybe there's a question about increased you know incidences of stroke and some of the strokes that that they were talking about actually looked like they were actually venous so so in the slower moving rather than the arterial circulation all that being said you know i think that there there seems to be something related to blood vessels coagulation inflammation going on with this um and we're we're you know we have it under the microscope so much we're like focusing on every single complication trying to get a handle on it um and so i think that's where some of these news articles are coming up is that you know people are seeing things there's potentially a, a you know physiologic plausibility argument to be made and then it you know, hits the news. And it's, again, these are all things that are kind of in conversation in the hospitals, in research um, as well. Um, but it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see if any of that bears out to be something as we understand this disease more over time. And this might be a good time to take a step back. I want to, I want to like pick both your brains right now, because we were talking about this off the air. And so we're not going to quite get in the, under the microscope right now in this section. Uh, well, but uh, you just mentioned something about how we get it. We're getting all this news and we're getting, so, you know, it's strokes, it's, it's uh, Kawasaki. <laughs> how best should we begin to filter this information? And I kind of want to use that article from, uh, from, from Ed, when he kind of talked about the complexities and what if, what if the media responded the same way the scientific community responded in? So like, I would like to, you know, Steve, in your way, like when you, when you hear something like this, when there's this, like through a scientific lens, how do you, how do you traditionally respond in light of this information? Like say somebody comes in, it's like, okay, now it's Kawasaki. The next last week it's, it's stroke. And this is all really piece of information, right? Uh, how do you, how do you kind of marshal this stuff and keep things in, in perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I can maybe speak to that both from a scientific and a personal perspective a little bit. So, because I think they overlap quite a bit. So I think that, you know, a new piece of information comes in and I think that when it's when it's something like this, especially something that you know has has the potential to affect one's health or to affect the trajectory of the outbreak, this sort of thing, you know, you sort of want to immediately try to integrate it into what you already know. But I think that sometimes sometimes new information can be so shiny and distracting that you almost forget what you already know, which is something that Mark was already saying that like 
we haven't seen waves of these kinds of infections coming through yeah. places where we've already seen infection coming through. So that that already helps us sort of get a sense for like how how common is this? How likely is it to be a really big player in these infections or not? And so I think it's uh, usually what I try to do is to just take a step back and think about what we already know and how this fits into the big picture and recognize that like if if this is something that we're only finding out about now you know there's that the, there's a good chance that a lot of the other things we already know are are, are still are still the, the important things mm-hmm. and that this isn't really changing our understanding things of things altogether this is this is related i think but maybe from a more personal perspective this i i listened to a talk by um arthur brooks who's a parishioner at the church up here um, that I go to, and he—he's basically a social scientist who thinks a lot about human flourishing and like what that is. And he was speaking with respect to this pandemic about the difference between assessing risk and living in uncertainty. And I think that sort of the goal here is is trying to take uncertainty and turn it into risk. You know, we we have this new piece of information and it's totally uncertain. But risk means being able to assign a probability to a given set of outcomes. But uncertainty is not even being able to begin to assign those probabilities to things. So as a scientist, it's sort of my job to assign these probabilities to different sorts of things. But as a human, it's also sort of my my tendency to want to assign probabilities to things. So I immerse myself in more information, try to learn as much as I can. But I think also to, <laughs> to to make a good probability statement, it has to be in the context of the probabilities of all of the events that are possible. And so that sort of goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning of just, just remembering what we know and remembering that none of that has changed. And then just trying to as- associate this new piece of information into that broad picture. And I, and I found that to help me both, both personally and scientifically. I love that. Mark? Yeah. I mean, I think I definitely agree with that. I think there's a, and the, there's a tendency... And a, and a good one that is we know more about something we feel like we gain control over it. And so we are hungry for these sorts of things and like, well, maybe, but, but there's also this exhaustion that comes, you know, so it's like the rapid cycling through now I've got to worry about vascular complications. And I thought I had control like two <laughs> yeah. weeks ago because yeah. like maybe the pediatric population isn't as affected. And now all of a sudden maybe the pediatric population might be affected in this other way. And so now that, feeling of control that I had over this, you know, very chaotic experience, uh, feels like it's slipping away with every new headline. And that is utterly exhausting. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's also, you know, I think just as Steven said is, you know, it's, it's very human and understandable. I do this, you know, all the time. And I think we can be a little bit gentle with ourselves and generous in recognizing that that is part of the way that we're trying to just feel okay. Um, but we also don't necessarily have to be in charge of keeping track of all of those things. Like each and every one of us doesn't have to keep up with all of those things because the basic things, the things we already know are still operative. That's great. I mean, I really love holding that intention, Stephen, what you're saying of just that distinction to, and it goes back to Monday of there, there are, there is an enormous amount of uncertainty and there are risks and those aren't synonymous realities that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, and that's the, I mean, gosh, that is a temptation, right? That for me, that's a temptation to make uncertainty a risk in and of itself, which then, and then on top of that, what you're saying, Mark, of just like with all some information, uh, not only does information feel like uh, a sense of control, like you're trying to like you need more information, but then also the impulse then to want to control more because uh, you realize, okay, there's this new piece of information. I was unaware of this yesterday. I have it now. Now I have to insert more control someplace to compensate for my sense of lack of control. And this like just spirals. And I, 
And I, I don't really have a simple answer besides like, please don't read the news every single hour. Uh, that's probably, I don't, I don't really have a simple answer. But, but in the end, it's like, as Mark was saying as well, these things, and what you were saying, Stephen, the fact that this came out now, at least at the moment, says that this is not a new pandemic. This is just something that, that, that began to percolate in some place that needs, that needs consideration, that needs to be looked at. And, uh, and it may, came out, it may come out to be a, a nothing. It may, be, it may come out to be something. But uh, what we do know is that uh, it's not something that's uh, all pervasive. So it shouldn't be all pervasive in our mind. Uh, be proportionate to our mind. Yeah. Uh, I just, yeah, I just want to stop and just, just, it's just, and I just say it's only because I'm in Facebook more than I've ever been in the past years, which it really kind of stinks. Cause I really, I had a good, <laughs> I had some good, I had some good momentum of not being in Facebook, deleted it from my phone, did everything. Now it's on my phone again. I'm chilling the time and I'm just seeing all this kind of uh, a mass hysteria all over the place. And uh, yeah, it's just tough. And I just want to know how, how do we, how do we keep sober? Uh, and, and, and ride this, this, this fine line, which in the end, it's uh, subscribe to this podcast is what we're trying to do, right? <laughs> it's okay. It's complicated. So uh, that's, that's our, that's our mission, our new mission. Uh, let, let's get into uh, some, some, uh, a meaty part of what we wanted to talk about. Uh, the biggest thing in the news uh, is, how do I say this, Mark? Is it rem, remdesivir? Remdesivir? Rem, uh, remdesivir, yeah. Remdesivir. Sorry, I'm remdesivir. So, uh, I, we, hey, Fauci said, said, said it's, it's hopeful. So, uh, Mark, what, what does this mean and what's going on with this perspective? And, and I want to frame this quickly uh, for Mark because I had a question from a good friend of mine uh, who I haven't seen in a long time. And uh, I posted an article, that article I mentioned from uh, uh, The Atlantic, and uh, he responded to it, which I was thankful for. And was mentioning how, uh, what was that other one? The ox, the chlora, cl- the- yeah, yeah, hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine, how that would kind of uh, receive some bad press, uh, some bad um, research on it, and uh, really needed more clinical trials. And then uh, just mentioned the hesitation to really uh, trust clinical trials because it's all about um, to putting placebo, placebo effects and whether that's actually an ethical reality of being able to actually, you know, he posed the question to me that what if your son or daughter was in a hospital that was doing this and he, your son was critically ill and, he, and your son was given the placebo effect, right? Would you be happy with this? And so he was suggesting that anecdotal evidence is much superior in his mind than this clinical trial stuff. So in light of that, where are we at with this and what's the hopeful sign? And then can you talk back about even the ethical dimensions of, of dealing with clinical trials in the, in, as well? Yeah, you bet. Those are so. These are super meaty questions. So we'll yeah. get in, and we we may, you know, let's let's get into it a little bit, and then uh, and I think in dialogue is kind of the best way to approach sure. some of this stuff. So we'll we'll bounce it, but let's let's talk first about sort of this remdesivir study because that's what's been in the news and what's been um, going on. So so remdesivir um, is one of a slew of agents. So that so as I you know. Um, as I look, we've had several randomized controlled trials going on at our institution and kind of multi-center trials, and this is one of them. Hydroxychloroquine has been another agent that we've been looking at. Um, we've been looking at cerulimab, which has a totally different mechanism of action. Um, there's another antiviral combination called lopinavir-ritonavir, and then there's also the convalescent plasma, right? And so that's the plasma from people donated from people who've recovered from a COVID infection. And those are kind of the front runners right now in terms of what might have a measurable effect size. The reason I bring all those up is just from the outset, um, as you know, you can kind of see that there's, there's a complexity and we, and that's a lot of 
potential treatments that may or may not have potential benefit um, that we need to figure out what works because uh, we want to give the you know people who are ill the thing that works and that's safest um, and so what it looks like and what dr fauci has been saying um, is so they so there was a study that was done um, here and that with about a thousand a little over a thousand hospitalized patients um, and um, this is all it's kind of pre preprint data. So this is not so we've talked about like preprints and peer reviewed articles. This is pre preprint. Um, okay. uh, but in part, it's such big news. And I think it's so important to get the news out there that that's where this is coming from. And so they just released it, I think today um, or, or late yesterday. Um, and what we saw are a couple things. Um, so they did show that there was a statistically different um, recovery time. And they, so it looks like maybe around 30% faster recovery in the group that got remdesivir versus the placebo group. Okay. And so um, that is a pretty promising result. Um, now, the immediate questions are what are the outcomes? Like, how do you measure? Um, time to recovery, what are the scales used, things like that. Um, it, as we globally look at the study, you know, it's it's randomized and controlled. That's good. It's multi-center. That's good. So those are things that add, um, you know, weight into, you know, this is generalizable. And that is going to be the key as we talk about what's the use of a randomized trial or a trial that uses placebo is what we're searching for is information that's generalizable that we can apply across different scenarios and expect a similar result when we do that. Now, when we're talking about outcomes, the the golden, you know, the golden ticket is a mortality difference. Um, and so it's not length of stay in the hospital, it's not time to recovery. The big winning ticket in a randomized control trial, trial is a statistically significant mortality difference. And unfortunately in this study we did not see that. What we saw was a trend. Um, so there, um, looking at the numbers here, it looks like about eight. There was an eight percent mortality rate in the un uh, in the treated group versus an eleven point six percent in the placebo group. Okay. Now immediately, don't don't go out and and think that this is indicative of the mortality rate of all coronavirus infections, right? So this is a subgroup of pop of hospitalized patients who are already sicker to begin with. And so we're going to see higher mortality rates in this population to begin with. Sure. So that's, you know, we see that. And so 8% versus about 12%, there is a trend towards a mortality benefit with this treatment too, and that's worth paying attention to. So, is statistic, you know, so statistical significance we talk about a ton. Is that something that's like super, super basic, or is that worth talking about? You know, briefly what that means. That, yeah. So, you know, the idea is that like any anything you do in the real world, um, there's going to be chance variation. So, you flip a coin ten times, and there's a chance that it's not going to come up five heads and five tails. You might get, you know. Uh, six and four or whatever. But that happened just because of random chance. Well, the same thing with trials like this. There's a chance that the effect size that you see is actually just uh, by virtue of random chance. And what the statistical significance helps us do is, is say essentially that it's very unlikely that this finding happened just by chance. Um, and so it's very unlikely that the effect size that we see um, would have been generated just by random chance. We think actually it's, it's a factor of having the drug or not having the drug. Um, 
and we set historically, um, you know, we set kind of a p value of 0.05, so like less than 5% chance that this could have happened by random chance is where we cross this threshold of statistical significance. Uh, and we okay. say, um, and so that's what that's talking about is that this, you know, given the power of the study um, and the effect size, we didn't reach that threshold for saying it was a statistically significant difference. Okay. Now, when something doesn't reach statistical significance, it doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that it's inconclusive, okay? Mm -hmm. So that it doesn't mean necessarily that the find it negates the finding, it's just inconclusive. And so what we have is a trend towards a mortality benefit that currently is not statistically significant, it's inconclusive, it merits further study, um, you know, additional high-powered trials. Um, it, but it is, I think it is generally hopeful that this, out of the treatments we have, this seems to be one of the more promising ones. Okay, that's good. Now. Let's talk about clinical trials versus uh, the the anecdotal stuff that's going on. Um, you know, I didn't think much about this. So my friend mentioned it, and I do see uh, the difficulty of. I mean, I could clearly see the benefit of doing clinical trials. I mean, the what you just set the stage for is how on earth do we try things and test things to ensure the best of our ability to make sure they're safe and they're effective, right? We've got to do both those things. Uh, and so it seems just naturally, clinical trials might be the, the best, most effective way. To, to, to move that direction. Can you speak about the difference between these two and um, maybe your ethical, like uh, the, how, do, how, do, how, do, how does a placebo effect uh, placebo given to someone an ethical thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And um, and so we're not, it, just to be kind of precise about language, we're not talking about placebo effect in the sense where sometimes we think a placebo effect is like you give somebody a sugar pill and they derive some sort of benefit from it. Like, and they, <laughs> yes. it, you know, all of a sudden yeah. it's like my hair's Sorry. growing yeah. back and like, yeah. I'm, you know, yeah. Yeah, all this. It, it, so that's we're, what we're talking about is the use of a placebo within, placebo. Um, you know, within a randomized clinical trial. So we have lots of different kinds of data. And as you said, you know, you have anecdotal data, you have observations observational data. Um, so you may see an effect or you know, presume to see an effect within a population. Um, but it's very important that if we're going to kind of deploy this, you know, use this intervention widely across a population, um, that we have a really strong understanding of the effects of that. And so um, there was a great little editorial um, in the Lancet from I think yesterday or today that talks talks about this in particular. Um, and I, I'd like if I could just to kind of read what they say because I think this is a really good gloss of the value of these sorts of trials. So what they sure. said is, um, and we can link. I'll send you the links. So we can link to it. Promising signals from observational data must be rigorously confirmed or refuted in high-quality randomized trials, particularly given that for COVID-19, no proven safe and effective treatments yet exist. Ideally, efficacy-based trials, including proof-of-mechanism studies, might precede these larger effectiveness trials. But it's challenging in a pandemic. And they, they go on to say the temptation is to lower the threshold of convincing evidence, or sorry, the, the temptation to lower the threshold of convincing evidence must be resisted because adopting ineffective and potentially unsafe interventions risks only harm without worthwhile benefit, making it even harder to undertake trials to find truly effective and safe interventions. We've already seen other drugs repurposed for COVID-19, including hydroxychloroquine, report disappointing findings so far in randomized trials after early promise. Um, and so, you know, I think the hydroxychloroquine is a great case example. Um, there was a lot of early hype, a lot of early promise. Um, when it went on to get studied a little bit more rigorously, we're not seeing that there 
therapeutic benefit that we had hoped for necessarily doesn't mean it's you know it's tricky but we we want things that have a good effect size without having a bad risk profile you know we want something where um, the number needed to treat um, so essentially the number of people that need to get the drug in order to see you know a life saved or a benefit um, and is very high and the number needed to harm you know the number who need to get it who don't get QT prolongation and a heart arrhythmia, for instance, is very low. Um, but the only way to get that data rigorously um, is you know, the best way that we have is through these sorts of randomized trials. Um, you know, your, your friend asks a question, which is an, a really good one and a really important one, which essentially he, he's asking, is it ethical? You know, we have a treatment that we think might work. We're in a crisis. Is it ethical to to not give somebody that if they're sick? That's um, it's such a good question, and I think um, that that is um, it's just an important it's important to kind of rest on that and 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 recognize the type of kind of scientific and ethical thinking that goes behind a question like that um, first, because those are things that scientists and researchers um, and clinicians wrestle with and have wrestled with, um, and what we have you know is kind of a, Ideally, we have the best um, that we can come up with in terms of how do we equitably allocate the interventions. Um, how do we, you know, deal with the resource limitations that we have? You know, like that long list. We can't give everybody in the ICU all five of those treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, both from a resource perspective and because it could be dangerous to get all of those drugs when you're sick already, you know, at once you don't want to be throwing the kitchen sink, uh, you know, at at people all the time. And, and, and how do you pick and how does it not become just arbitrary who gets what? And ultimately then how does it not just be like, um, whoever is able to, you know, access it because of, you know, whatever preexisting things gets that. And we don't know, we don't know if there's an effect or not. Uh, it introduces a huge amount of bias kind of into the uh, understanding of that data. If instead of using random uh, allocation, we're choosing who gets what intervention, um, because then all of a sudden these other factors um, are intervening and we're seeing effects that may be from totally different variables that are hidden. Um, and so randomization helps to protect against that a little bit, you know, and I think, you know, it's true. I think People look historically, you know, their medical research, scientific research. We don't have to go too back, far too back in history to find instances in which unethical things have happened, um, you know. And it, but but this, you know, the example of using placebo trials in a in a pandemic situation in order to find the next best treatment is not not the same thing that it's not, you know, it's not withholding a treatment that we know works. It's actually saying, you know, we have these this menu of potential maybe benefits we need to figure out what works and this is the way that we're going to expedite that and do it in a rigorous and safe way uh, you know as fast as possible does that all kind of make sense is that helpful oh yeah i mean super helpful uh steven do you have have anything to say on this no i think one of the difficulties with this too i think is that it's it can be very common you know part of the question that i hear people ask frequently is like well well why why do things show early promise that doesn't end up panning out like why did why does that seem to be a story that plays itself out so frequently and i think that that can partly be explained sort of circling back to this idea of statistical significance too where if you have a hundred different trials going on in different locations and your threshold for statistical significance is that 95 percent 
you expect five, five, five of those hundred places to have promising results and 95 of them not to. And during these preliminary trials, the places that don't have a promising result probably just aren't going to report it because they just have much, you know, much more important things to do. But the ones that do are, you know, you're going to think you found something, right? And so you're going to report it. It's going to get picked up and there's going to be this sense of like, oh, this will be the next big thing. And so that's, that's what we talk about. That's what we mean when we talk about a potential artifact um, and why it is so important to, to support these things by these well controlled, well designed trials. Yeah. So, you know, one of the other things also that sometimes happens in these clinical trials is that they'll analyze the data as they go. Um, and if an effect size starts to open up and you start to see a really significant, you know, maybe more than you even expected benefit to a treatment, um, they will sometimes stop the trial for ethical reasons uh, so that everybody can get the treatment uh, and maybe not carry it through all the way to its the arbitrary time and point that they had set at the beginning of the trial. And so um, that's one of the ways that um, kind of trying to to lean towards, you know, how do we make this, um, uh, how do do we deal with some of these ethical questions in the midst of randomized studies? Um, And so that's another thing that, you know, potentially we could see either in this study, but we do see it in, in others where we see a big effect size, a big positive effect size or negative one, they may stop that trial early as well, just to not uh, persist once we already start to have enough evidence. That's great. And then, I mean, this is just me and my I, my limited understanding, but I feel like there's other advantages as well. I mean, just the fact that um, we do live in a time of limited resources, right? Like, uh, like um, and some of the resources that we have to, you know, create these antiviral medicines, uh, I might be using things that are used in other places. Uh, for other medicine. Uh, I mean, does that get into consideration as well? Is all this, I mean, just to build all of these, you know, you know, just invest all this resources towards antiviral ends up not working. Is that part of the equation as well to, to make sure we're using them wisely? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, it has to be right. Just on a practical level. Um, if we are spending, you know, tens, tens of millions of dollars on a treatment that is not effective, just based on anecdotal evidence, um, that money would be far better used in other places. And so it's, it's just one of the other reasons why having a rigorous way to assess if something works or not is so crucial. And even in a crisis situation, it's very crucial to, that we know um, and that we pay attention and, and move with kind of the precision that we need. That's great. I think, I think another way of looking at this is that I think ideally nobody wants to give a placebo. That's, that's the, you know, that that's not what's wanted, but the ideal is oftentimes, you know, not the real <laughs> and that uh, there's always consequences. I remember this might be a random thing, but I remember um, uh, I had a professor I gave a talk to and uh, for a class and I got a bad grade in it, but I gave a good, I, but I got a, I got a, I got an A for my ability to speak, but just the content was, I guess, a little off. But uh, the, uh, the, one of the things that I mentioned in here that I think bears helped the complexity of this is I, I was in computer science at the time. And so I was kind of comparing this idea of uh, efficiency and that sometimes there there's, needs to be a lack of efficiency for a sake of efficiency or for effectivity. And I gave the example back in the day of a computer and how, you know, that you have that big spinning disc that thankfully we don't have, except for Mark still has it in his 2002 
uh, laptop uh, that he's using right now. But usually most people don't right. have. I actually called in on a rotary phone today. <laughs> that's awesome. And I actually got the operator and then she plugged you in, you know, from, from their phone. That's right. I, I don't have Facebook yeah, on that phone. Matt, <laughs> totally. You know. Yeah. Can't find you anywhere on social media. Uh, so the, so there, so that, you know, the idea that here's a slow spinning disc that's on uh, the computer. And ideally that is not the place to store your information because it's just a spinning disc. It's slow. And there's that faster stuff like in the computer called the RAM or even faster, the CPU that has like a little bit of RAM in there and a little bit of memory as well. And that's a fast. And if you could just store all of your information, all your cool documents, your cool web, your YouTube videos right on the CPU, you'd just be ripping and you'd just be having a great time seeing things instantly. But unfortunately they're on that silly, silly old like rotating disc. And so why you would think there's no way on, on God's green earth that anybody would make such a thing intentionally. Right. And, and, and the answer is, of course they would, because if you were to make that disc as big or make the, the CPU that hard, that really fast memory as big as a disc, it'd be so outlandishly, outlandishly expensive. Nobody could afford a computer. So we have to have these like these inefficient discs for the sake of financial efficiency and, and effectiveness. And so it sounds like this is like a, a tangent, but I think this is just principle that's guiding a, the reality that it's, things are complicated and there's, we're always going to have to let go of something. Now, the thing is that we have good, ethicists on board to make sure that when we make sacrifices, that they're as minimum as as humanly possible. And they're also for the sake of of something that's good, right? As well. So um, just want to throw my two cents on there that, uh, that it's, it's, you know, it's okay. It's complicated Uh, that, that in the end, you know, we're trying to find, they're trying to find uh, a solution to help give people uh, the, the, the medicine they need uh, that's effective uh, and, uh, and does it come at a, at a large sacrifice of anything else? Okay. Uh, I think we've talked a lot today about this. We probably need to land, uh, the plane on this. I think my big take home, uh, early on, Stephen, w- that I want to encourage the listeners to, 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 to embrace is this idea of the, the, the discrepancy between, uh, the uncertainty and the risk, uh, and just really finding this next week to, to sit with uncertainty and be okay with it. It was mentioned Monday and to be able to sit back and look at, look at those times where man, things were uncertain and good things happen in the end and separate that from the risk. And then always, always evaluating the risk and how big it is. And now Mark would mention like in the midst of the things that are unfolding before us is constant inundation by news and new risks that in the end, uh, what we're seeing is, is, is very small waves. Uh, so take that into consideration Make sure you know that uncertainty is not a risk. They are separate. Um, and we'll end right there too. Reach out to Stephen, uh, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R. You can do that on Twitter, uh, M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R on Twitter as well. If you have any questions about concerns about the, uh, the show, uh, as well as if you can't afford anything, we'd love it. Uh, uh, Patreon.com slash Pandemic Podcast, as well as you can check out the show notes for uh, a PayPal or a Venmo link for just a one-time uh, small uh, support. Uh, anyway, I hope you guys have a wonderful week on this Thursday and weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. Take care. Bye-bye.